0: HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
2: Another Friday. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. We've made it through another week. We did. <laughs> Oh, you're just, you're just going to do the water, huh, Nance? Yeah. Water and
3: happy hour. You guys didn't prepare me okay. for that. <laughs>
2: Adam doesn't even have, Adam doesn't even
1: have any liquids to drink. What's, what's going on, bud? Yeah. Oh,
3: I'm my
4: goodness. Unprepared.
2: All right. Um, well, before we, before we start, let's warn everybody that uh, if they want professional investment advice to get it from somewhere else other than here, we're going to have a wide ranging conversation and go in lots of different directions. So we want the, uh, uh, the latitude to do so. And, uh, so with that, I will, uh, start the show. Go yeah. ahead, Adam.
4: Yeah, no, I just wanted to welcome Nancy for everyone who um, is watching. This is none other than Nancy David. Maybe Nancy, give your bio so that um, everyone knows where you're coming from and uh, <laughs> what you're doing these days.
2: Yeah, your, your career arc would be great. I think yeah. that, that's informative from, from, uh, from that perspective for all the the listeners and watchers.
3: Sure. Um, so I'm a... Really happy to be here with you guys this afternoon. Uh, it's a nice way to end the week. Um, I'm Nancy Davis. I'm the founder of Quadratic Capital. I founded the firm in 2013. Um, so it's been a, a lot of fun to run my own business and, um, and innovate in the in the ETF space. Um, I'm the portfolio manager for the eyeball ETF. And uh, I started my career um, before starting Quadratic. I spent most of my time at Goldman Sachs. Um, I was at the firm for about a decade and uh, I rose to become the head of credit derivatives and OTC trading for the internal prop team. So no capital, no outside money. It was just Goldman's capital. So
4: Very neat. And, and then how, how do you think that your career trajectory prepared you for the management of this type of strategy? So so maybe what does the strategy do and and what makes you uniquely qualified or experienced to um, to do it justice?
3: So the strategy is um, long convexity. It's, a, it's an inflation-protected bond fund, but then we augment the measure of inflation away from just the CPI index. Um, the big problem that we see with just using, you know, many investors talk about inflation and inflation expectations, but they're talking about the difference between Nominal bonds and inflation protected bonds and it's sort of like saying, you know, I'm going to have equity exposure, but I'm only going to buy uh, The Dow Jones or the TSX. It's just uh, index. And so my expertise is really on the um, Options side and what we do is we add Options that are on the rates market because the rates market is a broader measure of inflation and inflation expectations and we use long options, which are long fixed income volatility, because it's a very nice, uh, uncorrelated thing to own inside a portfolio. Um, and uh, in my experience um, from Goldman was running cross-asset class ball strategies. And I think you know most, most regular investors don't realize they're short ball with their mortgage exposure. Um, mortgages in the United States, uh, at least I'm not sure about Canada, but investors, uh, homeowners can prepay whenever they want. So a mortgage owner is actually short an option. Um, So we saw that there was a problem with uh, fixed income portfolios and the search for yield and uh, taking too much credit spread risk. And so the nice thing about running a firm and running a business is you can innovate. And so we actually created uh, the iVol ETF and listed it in May last year, 2000. I'm sorry, two years ago now, 2019.
4: It's amazing that we're in 2020 yeah. already. So when you, 2021, geez. Um, so when you, when you say the rates markets, you mean taking positions in like Fed funds, Euro dollar, um, uh, like different, different bills markets or like right up to kind of two years or what, what do you mean by that?
3: It's a good question because there are like a million different interest rates, right? There's policy rates, there's SOFR, LIBOR, uh, treasury curves, swap curves. Um, So specifically, we have exposure to real interest rates because we use treasuries with inflation protection, the TIPS market. So those are just U.S. treasuries plus inflation that resets with CPI. And then we augment that with interest rate options. And what we use are... OTC interest rates. So our fund is really an access vehicle because there is no listed market. So most people can't access, you know, you could trade a listed product or you could trade treasury options, but we use um, the OTC swaps market, um, which is something that most investors can't access on their own. Gotcha. So
4: maybe paint a picture for what your portfolio might look like? And I don't know how granular you're, you'd love to go, but I mean, just, just to give investors sort of a general sense of what, what the portfolio mm-hmm. might hold from day to day.
3: So um, 85% of the fund is U.S. treasuries. Uh, we use the tips with inflation protection, and then we use cash as a way of reducing the duration of that passive index. Um, and then we own fully funded options. So it's a pretty Simple strategy in the sense that there are only, you know, not many funds have only three things in it, with one of them being cash, but the options are are pretty unique and something that, you know, even though a lot of investors might have experience with all sorts of you know, credit products and other strategies, a lot of people are not as familiar with with options, especially OTC interest rate options. And so it's a nice, you know. I think of it as almost like a mirror image of a mortgage. You know, if you think about a mortgage, it's a, in the US at least, it's an agency obligation coupled with that short option. IVAL is a treasury obligation coupled with a long option. And we actively manage the portfolio. So when managers buy the ETF, they're hiring us and the quadratic team for our expertise with managing OTC interest rate options.
4: Gotcha. So that the tips. Portion. Is that uh, is that a tips ladder or are you targeting a certain duration or how does that look?
3: So we we actually keep it really simple. Um, we are a total return fund So we use um, a passive tips index. We use a 14 and a half billion dollar uh, Treasury fund um, There's actually about 40 billion dollars of AUM in that one index because there's another ETF that uses it So it's just a passive index fund and then we use cash as a way of reducing that passive index duration, but it gives our ETF tons of liquidity, and also it allows us to really embrace the technology. And that's what I see ETFs are as uh, the technology for in-kind trading. So we try to be very tax efficient with our fund, and so we do most of our bond trading what's called in-kind. So um, you know, at least for 2020, the fund had zero, zero, zero capital gains. Yay! <laughs> Which is Pretty awesome, you know. Being where inflation fund, we want to be. We want to be focused on total return.
4: That's great. I really like the idea of covering a broader spectrum of of inflation risks. So mm-hmm. I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you think about that because we, we talk a lot about how the CPI and the PCE deflator and other inflation baskets don't are not necessarily representative of a typical investor's consumption basket. Like you know, if you're hedged against CPI with tips or You've got a pension that 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 is indexed to some inflation metric. There's no guarantee that that inflation indexing or hedge is actually going to hedge against the type of inflation that you might experience, right? Um, depending on your income bracket, your lifestyle preferences, et cetera, you may be exposed to a broader spectrum or maybe an, even a narrower um, mm-hmm. set of inflation type exposures. Um, so how do you think about that and, and how do you express that? that thinking in this, in this product?
3: Yeah. So we, we do agree that, you know, the, there are a couple problems with tips by themselves. Like one is the index measure is all linked to that CPI basket, right? Which may or may not be the right measure. And number two, um, they're long duration. So if we actually had inflation, um, the bonds will lose money in a higher yield environment. So those were kind of the two problems we were trying to solve was, a, you know, giving another measure of inflation and inflation expectations. B, solving for what do you do with the duration in a tips portfolio. And I think the third is giving access to the fixed income ball markets because most most fixed income investors are short volatility in their fixed <coughs> income book from the mortgages. So those were the kind of. Giving a long ball product in fixed income space, giving exposure to inflation expectations not measured by CPI, and then also trying to create a better product that could actually, you know, potentially work. If you had inflation, you'd likely have higher interest rates. So you don't want to be giving up all your returns if you're, you know, preparing for the. Uh, I think of it as almost like if you own or rent a home uh, or apartment and you have homeowners insurance or renters insurance, and you're Your house doesn't burn down you're not like oh man that was you know that was a total waste of money and i feel like inflation protection is one of those things for investors portfolios because you know nobody wants to outlive their wealth and cpi uh there are a lot of downsides with it uh number one it's uh one one u.s government entity and that's the bureau of labor statistics who calculates this index and currently today you can go on to the you know, if you just Google BLS and CPI, you can see what's in the CPI, but about about a third of it is what they define as shelter. right? And if you peel back the onion, you're like, what the heck is shelter? It's actually mostly urban rent. So, you know, I don't think at least most of our clients are like, well, that's not necessarily the thing that they're super worried about, um, especially with the pandemic and generally rent prices, like at least in you know we're outside of uh, New York City, um, and you know rent prices are down to levels they were ten years ago.
4: So. Gotcha. So, I, I'm sorry, I'm I'm totally dominating this because I'm actually super curious. I've got like tons of <laughs> questions. Keep, keep I'm going. Sorry. You just keep
1: going. We'll line, that's you fine. Roll. We we are earlier for another show, so we're you you weren't oh, there. Yeah, Go right. ahead.
3: You already you you, you guys able have been having to too many uh, sips right. of drinks tonight, right? <laughs> that's
2: right. That's <laughs> <Rachel>. right. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone so, who knows me knows I'm very quiet and reserved. So that's that's right.
4: Those are the adjectives I've always used to describe you. <laughs> Anyone
3: who says that is lying. <laughs> uh,
2: Precisely.
1: Usually,
4: usually your your intuition is dead on there for sure. Um, so I guess your the, the inflation hedge um, for for Ival if I have the mechanics right. Are predicated on that inflation manifesting in um, either a parallel move higher across the yield curve or a an increase in the slope of, of the yield curve. Um, which yeah. of those are is the strategy most sensitive to or or, or let's call it convex to? Um, and then as a second part of the question, and we'll just start with the first one, but I just, just so you know where I'm going, um, there's been a lot of talk of sort of yield curve control and, and what they might call financial repression, right? Where inflation ticks up, but the Fed keep, puts a cap on rates. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so, so let's, but, so let's start with sort of what are the sensitivities of, of this convexity in terms of slope versus just a parallel move. And, and then we could touch on some of the implications there.
3: So maybe first for your listeners, let's just just take a step back. What the heck is the yield curve? Let's just define that to say, you know, what is it? It's definitely um, so there's there's policy rates, which is what any central bank sets. You know, so in the United States, the Fed sets the policy rates. And then there's rate expectations, meaning when the rates market thinks the Fed would be hiking, for instance, in the U.S., they're not really pricing in any hikes, you know, anytime soon. And then the yield curve is just largely a measure of inflation expectations in the future, because that's a risk premium. So like today, um, you know, if you go out to a bank and you open up a CD, you know, policy rates are close to zero. Maybe you get five basis points. If you say, How about I lock up my money for two years, you would get 10 basis points. And then if you say, hey, how about how about a decade? How about I lock up my money for 10 years? You would get paid a little over one percent to lock up your capital for 10 years and that's because the yield curve is unnaturally low and that's because a lot of people have been thinking oh they're going to do yield curve control and things are not going to be normalized and so that's really the difference between short-dated and long dated rates and it's currently a little over one percent which is a very abnormal situation um you know, i think the best example i like to put you talk about is a uh, 2013 policy rates in the US were still near that zero bound, but it was just normal that if you went to a bank and you locked up your money for 10 years, right? 10 year lockup, that you would get paid 2% plus a little bit. There was no fear of inflation, no average inflation spent targeting, no blue wave in the United States, no fiscal spending, no yelling in the Treasury. That was just normal. Um, today is not normal. And that's a, the kind of exciting thing for us with the eyeball ETF is we don't really need there to be some tail event or inflation. We just need a normalization in the rates market, which you've really already seen in the credit and equity markets, right? They've already priced in a recovery, but still a lot of investors and rates don't believe it, right? They're all hanging out. And you can see that with the level of you know, 10 year interest rates, whether it's 10 year treasuries or 10 year swaps, you know, why in the world would you get paid, you know, one percent, you know, when CPI is already higher than that? You're basically locking in a negative yield. So I think this the yield curve is really largely that risk premia is largely a result of investors' expectations for inflation in the future. So hopefully did I
4: No that was a really good background. Yeah. For sure and and so what I think I'm reading between the lines here then that you, the primary exposure here or sensitivity or, or convexity of the options um, portfolio is to a steepening of of the curve and you're you're less concerned with sort of a generalized rise in in, in rates right the steepness of the curve reflects inflation expectations that that's specifically what you are targeting a hedge toward.
3: Yeah, I mean a lot of people use those words, but I think what it what it what it plays out to be is we want the widening between short and long dated rates. That's another way. I think it's easier and more intuitive for people to think about because most especially most fixed income investors are used to looking at credit, right? And with, you know, anything that has a credit spread, whether it's, you know, levered loans, floating rate notes, you know, high yield bonds, investment grade, you want the credit spread to tighten or interest rates to go lower to make money. With us, we're long bonds. so lower yields is you know especially lower real yields is good for our, our treasuries that we own. We have a lot of bonds, so we don't dislike low yields right. Um, and then the options they they're completely agnostic to the level of rates. Absolutely. Right. like whether whether rates were positive 10% or negative 10%, they don't care. They just want the spread between short and long dated rates to widen. So I think comparing it to credit is like a little bit more intuitive for people to understand because a lot of people, like when you say steepening of the yield curve and they're like, what, the fuck? what is that? You know, they have no idea what you're talking about. And so I think it's more intuitive to talk about widening. And and the neat thing is, is like that widening can happen in a lot of different environments. You could have, say we have a huge risk off environment, say, you know, the the vaccine doesn't work, you know, it's huge risk off and the rates market starts to price in negative rates from the fed that can you know widen the spread so it can be lower front-dated yields or it could be like a super risk on day like november 9th the day the vaccine was announced the markets ripped right equities rallied credit spreads tightened and anything that had duration whether it was short duration long duration it didn't matter anything that is You know, even short duration strategies are still long duration, right? They're just less long. So all those strategies lost money. You know, tips were down about 30 basis points. I've always up 66 basis points that day, even though tips were down 30 and that's 85% of what we own. And so the cool thing is the options don't really care about the level of interest rates. We just want it to widen. Is that, is that clear?
1: Yeah. And, and certainly the prior to COVID hitting the markets, we saw that it was fairly cheap in terms I was looking at the move index prior to the event and of course yeah. then it widened, but it looks to me now that it, we are at like historic low ball for, for uh, interest rates again, which is absolutely bonkers. right? So it's, it's an opportunity to back up the truck and get as much cheap convexity in that trade as you can.
3: Yeah. It's, I, I call myself a Vega monster because I just want to gobble it all up. We're just we love all the ball And uh, and the move index actually hit its um, all time history of financial market lows on my birthday. And I was like, this is a gift from God, you know, <laughs> I'll just buy more. <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. And, and we don't have the move index. The move index. Interesting thing about that index world is it's all from the equity side of the business. And there's not a lot of pipes into the rates market. It's the same reason, like, why can't you buy an ETF in a 401k account? It's kind of stupid. It's just old technology. That's why they all use mutual funds, which I'm sure drives you all crazy, right? Um, so the index world is more legacy equity. So they need something listed in order to get prices. So the move index is not, you know, it's. Listed treasury options. So it's not the same thing as what we have, but it's the only index out there. The cool thing about what we own is our volatility is actually lower than what that index is. So it's even cheaper to buy this inflation protection than what the move index is pricing in.
4: So I think it's useful to um and, and you can obviously feel free to correct me, but but I think what you were saying was really interesting, right? It doesn't you don't need rates to go up to mm. Um. To to earn, uh, to, to to generate PL on your on your options portfolio rates short rates can go down, mm-hmm. and long rates can stay where they are. Uh, short rates can go up, but long rates can go up more. You know, uh, any there's a variety of combinations yeah. that would be beneficial to your to, to to the positioning of the portfolio. And and just to to sort of put the icing on the cake, in the event that you've got an increase in um, in in vol right so vol sort of expressing the uncertainty of um, of agents in the rate market uh, when vol goes up you also benefit right so uh, yeah, you, you've got these these three levers and that extra that extra uh, delta on on the, the vol is 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 also awesome. nice so that's interesting um, cool. we've got a couple of questions from from the audience so Anthony awesome. Antonia. Antonia uh, asked Tenio. is eyeball minus S C H P equal to a rate, the, the cost of a rate swap.
3: No. So <laughs>
4: the answer, the, the expanding on the answer to that might be
2: illustrative.
3: Okay. Sorry.
2: <laughs> just no, no, thank you for your question. <laughs> yeah,
3: thank yeah. You. Sorry, <laughs> sorry I should be more um, polite. So no, it's, um, we, we obviously, uh, S H P is a passive bond index that we do, uh, to be very, um, to use that in-kind technology when we're trading our bonds so we don't generate capital gains tax and try to be tax efficient. And then mm-hmm. the options component is inside that so you can compare, you know, here I'll, can I share my screen with you? Would that be okay? yeah, please do. I'm uh, trying to show, because everybody wants to know like, what's the breakdown? And we, we show that, hold on one sec. I'm a uh, share screen. And I want two monitor. I have a couple of monitors. I want this monitor. And, okay, can you see my screen? Well, yes, we can. Okay, so you see eyeball, yeah? better than just a no, I'll put numbers behind it. Here is the performance of um, the eyeball product versus uh, the tips. And so you can see, you know, in numbers that, no, it's not, it's not, Swaps. I'm like super anti swaps. I don't like linear instruments generally like futures forward swaps. They're all derivatives. And um, this is a pretty, pretty interesting. I have a different way of looking at the world. But derivatives are like, you know, it's like fruit, right? It's just lots of different types of fruit. We use options only. And we want the asymmetry because Inflation can go negative, right? We, we could clearly have a deflationary. There is no zero bound. And so if you had a swap, you would make a dollar, lose a dollar. I think that's really yuck, you know, especially with vol being so cheap. Why would you want to make one, lose one? Um, so we don't use swaps. We don't like swaps. A lot of people use um, inflation swaps. Those are also yuck, in my opinion, because they're linear. And they're still using that CPI. Let me just she- share again. I'll just share my screen on my uh, Bloomberg monitor. One sec. So can you guys see this? I'm going to make it bigger. Yep. Yep. Um, So here you can see the five year break even, which is the difference between nominal treasuries and inflation protected treasuries. It's already 231 basis points. Like that's not that exciting. And then if you look at the inflation swap market, here is the 10 year at 219. The 10 year inflation swap always trades at this premium to break evens. And again, it's CPI inflation. It's a linear product. It can go negative and you pay this premium because there's no natural seller of it. So the banks will just mark it up. So you see it's trading today at you know, A, you're buying this at 230 basis points and B, you're paying, you know, 20 basis point premium just to have, you know, an OTC counterparty risk. Whereas what we own is, is this. Um, This is the twos 10 swap curve. And this is, uh, I think a matter. It's not, it's not a swap, it's an option on this. So (laughs) this is the difference between the two year and the 10 year rate. And you can see back, you know, in 2013, there's just normal, you know, go to a bank, open a CD policy rates were still, you know, under 50 basis points, you walk up your capital for 10 years, it was just normal to have, you know, 250, there was no, nobody was freaking out about inflation here. This was just, you know, we were coming out of the European debt crisis, When we listed the fund, I'll try to put my cursor on it, it was May fourteenth, two 2019. Oh, I think I got it. Okay, so the spot curve was 18 basis points. Today it's 104, but you can see contextually it's not like you know it's kind of a yawn. Not much has happened yet. And here I'll just go back to you guys can still see my screen, right? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So the fund is up. I can go to the monthly numbers. Um, about a, a little over 21% since May 14th, 2019, when we listed it. Um, hold on, I don't have today for some reason. What is today? February so 21.8 percent through today's uh trading day and it's just you know nothing's really going on so we're pretty pretty excited about the opportunity because we think you know there's a lot of normalization to happen and that's not even that's not even saying hey we're going to have stagflation or there's going to be inflation it's just a more normal environment
2: and that's so so as we have just i just want to so that Reflects the widening that you're talking about. That you expect a just going back to normal would create yeah. the widening, right? The, just to put it in the nomenclature that you had talked about earlier. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Rod, or just, whoever.
3: If, yeah, you, so if I, you open I, a, a bank CD and you lock up your money for a decade, it would just be normal to get paid. You know, if you think the inflation rate's going to be two percent, why would you ever lock up your capital and get paid less than that? That's what I think is weird. That's that's what doesn't make sense to me and when auto rate people talk about inflation expectations, they're talking about the break even level, which again, I think it's like saying, I own equities and I own the Dow Jones. You know, it's just, it's just a index. It's one measure of inflation expectations. The Fed doesn't even use it. So I don't think it's super relevant.
1: So one of the things that interests me about uh, options traders, because you know, you have this long component to the portfolio, but correct me if i'm wrong you you've been trading options since you started your career and i and i mm-hmm. imagine you were mostly a options trader understanding the bleed that comes along with holding a position that doesn't do what you want it to do and so on so mm-hmm. um how do you deal with that uh, mm-hmm. do you do it systematically like i'm curious to know once the volatility expanded in march and you had to re How do you handle re-upping your position on the options market when it's so expensive? So
3: the nice thing about the fund is it's actively managed because there is no interest rate volatility and inflation index. So there's nothing to replicate. So you get our expertise for managing, you know, vega risk in this market. And we can shift at any point, whether, you know, I call myself a vega monster today because vol's so cheap, I just load up the truck on it we have, you can see the average tenor of options inside the portfolio is 21 months plus on average. They're very, very long dated options. And that's because I think vol is a, a back up the truck right now. It's a, it's a really, really cheap, especially with everything that's going on in the, you know, real life. Um, whereas in March, what we can do is we can use um, more high gamma options, shorter dated options, higher strike options for more convexity. So you have the benefit of, you know, making an asset allocation saying, hey, I wanna have a way to, you know, have inflation, have inflation protection. I like having a long volatility product because, you know, we're not really correlated to anything else, which is nice. Um, Let me just share my screen with you all again. One sec. Uh, This one, such a pain having multiple monitors and doing this. So this is just our fact sheet and you can see, you know, this is a, the daily correlation of eyeball to many common indices. And you can see we're not we're not correlated to the VIX, We're not correlated to the AG, we're not correlated to equities. It's just something different. And this is nice because inflation is a risk on trade. And if we go back to the performance that I was showing to Antonia, uh, you can see in uh, in March, Eyeball, um, we actually don't have the month of March here, but Eyeball was positive in the month of March, even though tips were down 150 basis points. So we had less of a drawdown than tips by themselves. Um, and then our recovery from peak to trough was four trading days versus tips by themselves took almost three months to get back from peak to trough. So it's a nice thing to own volatility because you get this, you know, it's not correlated to other things. And I, personally, I think that's the reason, like, why why do people have, you know, what's the point of fixed income? What, what's it supposed to do? In my in my opinion, it's supposed to diversify your equity risk. And that could be your private equity beta, your equity market beta. It's, it's all these portfolios. The risk is in equities. And then the problem is, is we've been in such low rates for such a long time that investors have been pushed away from from government securities into all sorts of I like to call it credit crap. that's not the right very nice word but they're going into all sorts of things in the search for yield. and then you have like with credit, you have a similar baited equities, right because credit spreads will widen when equities sell off. So I think it's a nice it's a nice product because it gives that enhanced distribution or that potential for enhanced distribution. Let me just show you again. Um, we've been distributing uh, 30 basis points um, monthly. Let me just show you this. Since the fund started paying distributions in that summer. Can you see my screen? Yep. Yep. So we actually paid out 50 basis points in December 2019, but 30 basis points a month minimum has been our monthly distribution. And that's nice because investors have been going into all sorts of credit spread product in the in the search for yield and eyeball doesn't have um corporate credit risk right we we have counterparty risk with the options but it's different than you know some of these products have you know all sorts of you know european banks and you know asset-backed securities and cmbs and clo's and all sorts of you know generally credit spread risk and so i think it's a nice a nice solution potentially for investors to say look i I want something that's going to diversify my equities. I want to have that monthly distribution and I want to gain exposure to inflation that's not linked to that, you know, that one index.
4: So help me understand hey. how a um, portfolio of tips. I mean, what's the what's the indicated yield on the on the TIPS index at the moment? It's got to be in there.
3: That. <laughs> that's because TIPS reset with CPI. Um, So let me go back and uh, share my screen with you all again, and we can bring it up. Um, Okay, so we'll go to this is a passive fund that we use uh, the Schwab fund. (laughs) And you can see all these omitted, discontinued, blah, 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 because tips reset with the CPI Mm -hmm. and CPI uh, over the course of most of 2020 was continuing to fall because of the pandemic and inflation uh, going lower and lower. So there's no guarantee. Tips are a variable yield product. Um, and uh, the, the distribution currently is 1.11% for the 12-month yield from this Schwab fund. We can also look at this one is the, it's the same passive index. Uh, this is the, the same Bloomberg Barclays Treasury index, but you can see also lots of omitted and discontinued because tips are variable.
4: Yeah, so I, I guess where where I'm going is the um, so the historical yield has been call it one percent plus or minus a little bit, right? But you're distributing three and a half percent per year. Um, yeah. So so how do we how how do you how do you close that gap in such a consistent way? Like that's a, that's a that seems like a huge hurdle to overcome in such a consistent manner.
3: So that's from the options component, obviously. Um, know, you're,
4: you're buying options, right? So, so shorting your, you of must be shorting kill, all right? the ball
1: then. What's going on?
3: No, no, we're not selling vol, not selling vol. You guys are, uh, you're, you're, you're equity ball people, right? Because you're, you know, the only way to generate. Totally confused. Helping yeah, totally confused. Okay, so equity ball, yeah, there's nothing you can do with equity options. If you own an equity option, you just bleed. It's like every day you walk in, you're going to lose a little bit of money, you know, probably 99% of the days, and then maybe one day you'll make a lot, but then it'll mean revert back. And so the reason a lot of people sell, you know, anytime you see the word right, right is like a nice word for short volatility. Um, So put right buy right, any of that sells equity options. This has nothing to do with equity options. We own interest rate options. But the cool thing about interest rate options is although you pay time decay because you're still long, long gamma, long vega, long the convexity, but you still pay theta, but we can have positive role between the spot and the forward. So it's similar more to like, um, you know, FX, a lot of Canadians love to love their carry in the FX market. What is that? That's a rate differential, right? And that's a carry strategy. So I see the rate options market is similar to you know other type of carry strategies where we still, you know, we don't sell naked options. We don't sell spreads. There are a lot of tricks that people do in the options world, especially in equities, where they, you know, they might say, "Oh, we're a long ball," but they go sell a bunch of fronted options, so they're short gamma, um, or they sell, you know, they buy vol in one spot and they sell vol in another. This is very simple. This is a long only fund. It's always long options. It's just a question of which options were long and how much were long. <laughs> um, and when we right. sell, we sell to close to profit, take and we roll. And the options are pretty unique because they generate um, ordinary income. Um, let me show you the Canadians. I'm not sure. I'm not a tax expert. I'm not giving tax advice. I want to do all my don't know anything about. There's
2: no advice uh- here at all. Give but, the disclaimer, uh, Mike, Give just, the disclaimer. just to be clear, there is no advice here of any no kind.
3: There's there also barely any Canadians advice. watching,
2: I suspect. Yeah. So. But, yeah. so you, you can stick to the American uh, expertise. Okay, the here Canada. We're, we're
3: not giving advice in America either. I'm. Uh, yeah, saying, precisely. If you, if you go and look at our fact sheet, um, you can see that ah, exactly. options are not ordinary assets. Uh, I'm sorry, they're not capital assets, they're ordinary assets. And so when we sell them for a gain, they generate ordinary income and that is different than interest income. If you look at our, like, let's see, SEC yield, gosh, it's zero. Why is that? That's because tips. This is through August twenty one. Going back to here, tips didn't pay anything. So there's no interest income. That's why the SEC yield, SEC yield is interest income. The options generate ordinary income not interest income. So that's why this, I think this is kind of weird. I, there's nothing I can do though. It's, it is what it is, but they're, um, they're not, uh, they're not regular, you know, most, most funds that use derivatives, whether they're um, futures, forwards, swaps, all those things are considered capital assets. So they generate capital gains or capital losses. Ours uh, are ordinary. So they generate ordinary income or ordinary losses and the ordinary losses are not necessarily a bad thing either um because say you know going back to the house analogy say you you know your house you, you have homeowners or renters insurance and your house doesn't burn down at the end of the year you're not like disappointed about that so say there is no um say say the options all expire worthless over the course of the year say nothing happens so there's no interest rate volatility or inflation hedge and we underperform a regular TIPS portfolio. Let's just say, you know, disaster node, the options that we sell at a loss or options that expire worthless are actually negative income, which is pretty cool (laughs) because there's no cap on yeah, there's no cap on how much negative income you can have. Um so the fund is taxed on the fund level, not on the individual level. But again, I'm not giving tax advice, but it's a Pretty. The rates market is a really nice place to own volatility for the long term because it's not always positive role, but most of the time it does have very, very benign, if not positive carry. So, to, wait, the tune of, to the tune, tune of like
4: two and a half percent a year. What? To the tune well, of like two and a half percent a year,
2: right? Some like, of that's got to be skill.
3: Be what?
4: Well, yeah, that's I'm just, cool. I'm trying to close the gap between the, the 3.6% annual um, like monthly distributions, right? Of thirty basis points and the the yield on the underlying tips portfolio. And I know you've you got a bunch of this cash plus tips, right? So so you're not you're not getting you're not getting the full one point one percent or whatever from the tips. It's like yeah, we whatever have fraction a, of the tips portfolio. About, yeah. yeah. So 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 I guess what I'm saying is that that role yield is um you can be you can be confident enough that that will don't, will be at least call it two and a half percent a year um, so, in so order it's not to
3: roll yield it's when we monetize an option so when we sell an option it generates you know if we just hold it mark to market it just has mark to market but if we sell it it generates ordinary income and we are a brick right. a registered investment company so we have mm-hmm. to distribute our ordinary income so that's why i say a minimum of 30 basis points because say Let's take the say the house does go on fire. So there's lots of inflation or stagflation and the options like, boom, really kick in, you know, and we lock in profits. We'll have a whole bunch of ordinary income, which we will be distributing to our shareholders. So it's uh, it's not a so guarantee. That's, that's thing. The, uh, but the role yield a-
1: helps. But but it's the active management that really helps. And you're yeah. going to have to distribute it because you're a wreck. Okay, so yeah. it really is all about the the long options um, portfolio that, that allow you Can't to get check the distribution out. So you know you you uh, you kind of call this out for being uh, uh, equity long ball guys, but uh, uh,
3: no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, mean, not joking. It's, About it's three or four I years
1: ago, that
3: people are always the hardest. Jason to Jason Buck story. is on <laughs> here. He's
1: really just livid. I can sense it from his eye from his emoticon. Um, the you know what i met you three four years ago in a toronto hotel and we were going we were walking down you were telling me that you were uh you had this massive brazil trade on i can't remember what it was but i in my mind i imagined it was an equity trade and it was this was an options based trade as well uh so have you always just focused on the credit market or are you have you done the whole gamut and what was that tell me about that brazil trade if I recall correctly, it went really well.
3: <laughs> so I only trade options. That's the one thing. You know, I do not like linear anything. I am an asymmetric girl through and through. So no no linear, you know, besides the, the treasuries, the only thing we have, we have treasuries. But I don't like linear derivatives. I No swaps, no futures, no options. So it, I'm sorry, only options. No, no linear derivatives. Um, so I'm sure it was an option trade. Um, And I love, uh, you know, I think of myself as a a professional convexity sniffer, and a lot of times when you have, you know, when you have consensus that something is going to happen, usually taking a contrarian view is priced in a really cheap asymmetric way. So I love to have um, contrarian views, and I think I definitely do remember that specific trade. I probably shouldn't go into details on what that was, because that wasn't in fund that we're managing right now but my expertise is in options across all asset classes i don't do stocks that's someone i'm not a stock person so but with equities we would use countries indices um and then so we we have experience in five asset classes so rate options obviously that's what eyeball is fx options so foreign currency all pairs um the uh credit uh markets as well so swaptions tranches and things like that with convexity and then commodities. I love commodity options Um, and then uh, and then equities, um, but no stocks. So it's all five asset classes. And that's very similar to what I did at Goldman as well. It was always cross asset class, you know, finding uh, interesting, uh, interesting convexities and payoffs. And that's why out of all the choices of things to do, you know, five different asset classes, it's a lot of stuff. I thought ivol was a really great fund because nobody was worried about inflation or inflation expectations nobody owned you know that and i was like well wow, that's kind of stupid why would people not want to own that you know it's like nobody wants to outlive their wealth right that would be a disaster so i thought it was a good you know kind of i hadn't done an etf before launching ivol but i was like this, this is a good solution for our investors this is a good problem because tips by themselves are not great. Um, and most fixed income investors are shortball from their mortgages. Did so that answer your question?
1: N- yeah, Nancy, it does. I, I just want to be clear that this, I don't necessarily want to focus on, I just don't, I don't want the Vega monster to be the only thing that we're talking about. I want some of the convexity stuff for, to come out. It doesn't, need, we don't need to focus on the iVol ETFs. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really interested in your Uh, history as all the convexity stuff so uh, unless there's some reason why you don't want to share the uh, the specific example of brazil um just generally speaking i don't
3: have that on now so i wouldn't feel comfortable talking about
1: that but that's all good i mean
3: the big question with those type of trading
1: the the type of trading that you that you do with options is that it's very different than anything else um it feels to me like that type of trading leads to a lot of Small losses, small losses, small losses, and large gains. It just you're not doing linear trades. Does your PNL look linear when you're looking at your just com- your convexity book, or is it more um, choppy and jumpy?
3: Well, I can show you for eyeball because we have a public fund, so you can see it, um, and it's not that choppy. It's I think it's all about size, right? Size matters. Um, so it's all about how much exposure, how much convexity, and it's it's a little bit of an art and a science combined because you want to have, you know, the right amount of convexity, but you don't want something to be like a big swing, right? A big, you know, options are a zero or one. And so I really like using longer dated options. I think most, most people in the options world, especially in the equity world, they love to sell short dated options because they want their theta and they want it now, right? Their goal is to, when you sell an option, you want it to expire. Right. The most you can ever make is the day that you sell it. And so a lot of people sell short dated options because they want that high time decay and they want it now. And so most of the world uh, in the option space, especially in equities, uses shorter dated options. I prefer longer dated options generally in most asset classes because then you have more time for things to play out. Right. You don't have to make a bet about, hey, this is going to happen in a week or next month. This is going to happen. Um, so I prefer longer dated options generally. I think a, a quick way to lose a lot of money is in short dated options if you're long or short, but short's worst.
4: Got so I, I wanted to, to, to talk about some of the other ways that, that um, inflation might manifest
2: right um because before before we go there adam just one one last small point of clarification because i i do love that direction but it's a it's a it's a big turn so just so 85 percent in tips some amount of the 15 percent is managing the duration of tips and then some percentage of of that's left over is in the option book can can you on average sort of um um, highlight what that is. What what is in the option book on a on a sort of general average over the duration? What what's in what's in the the option book? What percentage of the portfolio?
3: So the nice thing about an ETF is it's fully transparent. So you can always see what it is. Um, and I love that about ETFs. I feel like the transparency is great. Um, so you can pull up like here. We can go into Bloomberg and just pull up. Description, and you can see that you know about 85% is in the passive treasury fund, mm-hmm. and then we have is this adds up to be a little under six percent uh, in fully funded, long dated options. And you can see the Vega monster in me because look at the tenors of these, these are long dated options because I love buying them all. Um, mm-hmm. And so we run the portfolio, um, and every day you can always see exactly what's in the portfolio. So you can see how it changes and how we, when we're rolling and what we're doing. So typically on average, um, we've been running the range over the course of the fund's existence has been 3% on the low side in terms of fully funded long options. 9% was the high side that was right after the fund listed in May, 2019 um, when the, it was like a baby fund. Um, but typically we try to keep it around, but we don't manage, um, we manage a couple of different Greek exposures. Um, so we're doing active management. It's not just the, the the market value of the options. It's not just a premium, right? It's it's how, you know, how long dated they are, what strikes do you own, what, what are there? So there are a lot of different components to manage. And that's why we actually have a ton of Canadians who use the fund. Shout out to all my macro Canadian hedge funds because a lot of them use it because they don't have maybe ISDA agreements on their own, or even if they do, they just don't want the headache of dealing with like, how do I book this? What do I do with it? How do I manage it? They don't want to be managing the Greek exposure on an Excel spreadsheet. You, know, you can't even really price these things in Bloomberg. So we do have a lot of um, professional investors who use our product as a way of gaining access to this market. Did I answer your question, well?
2: Absolutely fabulous. Over to Adam. Sorry, Adam, for that uh interlude no no
4: no 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 problem yep um so yeah so so an options book on the twos tens swap market right yeah um okay so uh, inflation right i mean just just circling the wagon on on this because i think especially a lot of our audience are are interested in this and, and we talk a lot about that on the show and it's definitely entering the the zeitgeist as as an area of potential concern right and so i'm just trying to think about the type of scenario i, I mean i think we've covered off the the types of inflation and and the manifestations of inflation that would um th- that your the ival fund is explicitly designed to protect against right I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts on 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 compliments so so for those who are who are generally concerned about inflation um and who are maybe concerned that inflation might have to leak outside the rates um domain due to you know just general sort of government control um and you know you've played in the multi-asset space for many years. What are your thoughts on how to sort of complement this product with other potential inflation hedges?
3: So a lot of people use commodities or equities to gain exposure to their, you know, inflation and inflation expectations. And then you have a whole nother segment in the private world that's doing all sorts of like bizarro things like timberland and coffee plantations and illiquids. So I would separate it between two, like the the liquid public securities, which tend to be equities and commodities. Uh, and then the private securities, which is, you know, all these, at least in the US, like these public plans have all sorts of like crazy, crazy things that they do, you know, like nut, nuts and, coffee and you know timber to gain real asset exposure. So I'd say there are two camps. Um, on the liquid side, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, certain equity uh, sectors should do well there. You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, I think the big challenge is if we actually had inflation, then the Fed might not be able to be on hold for as long as they can. And that potentially could make equity sell off. You know, all investing involves risk and there's no, there's no one trick pony, right? Nobody, you know, we really haven't had it since the 70s. The one thing I do feel confident that we're not gonna have 70s style inflation because personally, I think oil, you know, it's kind of like a, like a laptop, you know, it's it's just getting technology is making it cheaper and easier to get out of the ground. don't really think we're going to have an oil shock like we did in the 70s. But I know a lot of people will buy oil or other commodities as an inflation hedge. And then a lot of people use gold um, or other precious metals. And I get, you know, I get gold from a psychology trade. I get it from a, you know, um, a, a currency play. I don't really understand it as an inflation trade. That to me doesn't make a ton of sense because it's a, it's actually a negative carry asset. You know, Warren Buffett, uh, he said uh, in the late 90s. I'm paraphrasing, but you know, if Martians were looking at the Earth, they would think we were out of our mind to be digging it up in one hole, melting it down, putting it in a different hole, and paying people to guard it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, you know, and and gold, especially if you have it in, you know dollars or Canadian dollars, it's a negative carry asset. So I don't know if gold is a good inflation hedge. I definitely think it's good for psychology and it's good for FX, but I think it's more of a not an inflation hedge in my point of view. But that's what makes a market. And when people think, you know, a lot of people are buying, you know, cryptocurrencies and other things, because they think it's an inflation hedge. It's really not what is not what happens that matters, it's more prices that drive these markets. And I think whatever, you know, I think the rates market is a very pure way of gaining exposure. I'm like, why mess around? Like people are in bank stocks and equity ball and having, you know, tips and all sorts of things. I'm like, isn't it more simple just to use eyeball? I think we'll accomplish that goal in a cleaner way. And then you don't have to be managing all these different things, but like anything you should diversify, right? Cause you just never know you know, you don't want to have all your chips on one thing.
4: I like that. Um, so so in a portfolio context then, so considering the different forms that inflation might take and then considering, you know, just the ambiguity about whether we're going to see material inflation in our investment horizon, um, you know, just acknowledging the, the huge amount of uncertainty in the trajectory of, of economic um, characteristics and, and financial markets. Um, and and sort of scoping out a, a diversified truly diversified portfolio against all these major types of market conditions, um, what does a what do you think a portfolio looks like and where does Ival kind of sit in in that and um, how would you kind of think about sizing it?
3: So uh, the one thing I'd say is people it depends how much you hate credit. <laughs> you know, That's a weird way to start. But I think we all
4: loathe credit. So you're, yeah, you're loathe it. Yeah.
3: Loathe it. Love it's yeah. big. I mean, it's funny because the more people hate credit, the more they're like, oh, I love eyeball. Like, I have CIOs call me up all the time and they're like, eyeballs 25% of my portfolio. Should I make it bigger? I was like, I don't know. I'm not, you know, sizing is not my thing. I'm like a super specialist. But I think the, the investors who think defaults are going higher, credit spreads are too tight, the rally and equity and credit is just nonsensical they tend to have eyeball as a much bigger piece of their portfolio um some people use it just as an inflation substitute but it's i can show you here let me share my screen with you it's uh we have in our um on our eyeball website there's our materials tab and in here we have a presentation deck and on page nine and ten uh we have a couple of you know, classes of like, you know, we have we have a whole bunch of model builders who use eyeball. Um, most model builders in fixed income use the bloomberg Barclays ag index, even if they're active managers, they're benchmarked to the ag. Mm-hmm. And the ag is an old index. It used to be the Lehman AG, and it has about 40% as Treasuries, but it has no tips in it. Tips were invented by the US Treasury, the inflation protected bonds in the late 90s. And then about a third of it is short vol from mortgages. So we have a bunch of these passive investors who are like, look, we just want, we, we have no idea what's gonna happen. We just wanna have a diversified fixed income. And they use eyeball as a way to complete that passive fixed income exposure to give inflation, inflation expectations, and to neutralize the short vol of mortgages. Um, so that's been pretty popular as just a, you know, completion portfolio. We do have some, you know, real estate people. I, I think of IVOL as almost like opposite of a mortgage. You know, it, it's it's long an option and treasury portfolio instead of an agency obligation and a short option. So some people use it as a, um, you know, potential real estate hedge. It depends, obviously real estate's very local. Canada has been a very hot market. I do not know if it would be a good hedge in Canada or not. And then some people use it instead of having min-ball, low-ball equities. I really hate that strategy's name. They tend to be value-based stocks and people see them as defensive because they've had historically less drawdown, but they have really nothing to do with volatility. They just happen to have a lower standard deviation of returns. And so some people use, instead of having like low-ball, min-ball, they'll use eyeball as a way to actually have long-ball. And then on the fixed income side, we have a bunch of people that obviously replace it instead of just a TIPS portfolio. I was wondering
4: about that one. That seems like an obvious use case.
3: Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, especially when you look at, you know, you go back to the level of like, wow, break evens are, you know, 231 basis points and this is 104. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty obvious there to get, diversify away from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics CPI index. And then some people use it for floating rate notes because Putting rate notes are mostly credit spread risk. The coupon resets higher with interest rates, but it's not really the best. If they're worried about higher rates, it may or may not be the best thing. And then short duration has become really popular. Um, we have a lot of people who use, you know, they're in short duration because they're worried about higher interest rates. But the problem, the problem with short duration is short duration is still long duration, right? You are you are 100% guaranteeing you, that your investors, your clients will lose money in a higher yield environment with short duration. And a lot of the short duration strategies have gone down the rabbit hole into all sorts of credit crap. You know, they have all sorts of, you know, a lot of these indices have, you know, 80% of it is credit exposure. So although it's a short duration credit, you know, think about it, if you were, If you were a company right now, a corporate, and you needed money, would you take a short dated loan? Like I wouldn't. I'd be turned out. You know, give
2: give me the hundred year.
3: uh, yeah. It's generally (laughs) the crappy credits that use short dated debt. In my opinion, that's my bias. I don't want to offend any corporates, but you know, why (laughs) wouldn't you turn it out? So you look at a lot of these floating rate. You know, it's like short duration, and yeah, it might have a duration less than a year the likelihood of that thing that that Romanian bank going bankrupt is pretty freaking high. <laughs> so I think it's been pretty popular with a lot of professional fund managers, like a lot of endowments in particular, will use it as a replacement for short duration, because at least at least we have the potential to make money in a higher yield environment versus being guaranteed to lose money. And then going back to the the credit thing, the more they don't want credit exposure. The more they look at their short duration managers, and they're like, "Holy cow! It's 85, 86 percent," and they have all sorts of crazy things in there. You know, a lot of these short duration funds will have CMBS or ABS or you know, CLOs or um, European banks. All sorts of like, in my opinion, pretty toxic stuff to own in today's environment. So hopefully that advanced right. cash management,
2: I believe, is what they call it. From a from a multi-asset perspective though, if your concern is duration, is your bond book even the, the right place to start looking? Or should you be looking at your equity book? I mean in, you, you know mean, I, you I mean you've
4: I, got such a massive duration bet on your, your equity book.
2: Yeah. Right. If if my concern especially with I'm,
4: earnings yields where they are. Yeah.
2: Precisely. So so if, if I was, if I'm a, an advisor or an allocator that has concerns about duration. Uh, there's probably a more effective way to handle the duration in my equity book than there is in my in my bond book potentially How yeah I think that's a good space?
3: point and and everybody is worried about interest rates right now that is a consensus thing and it's priced fairly right you get paid nothing to own short duration like you take all this mm. crappy credit spread risk and you get you know 30 bps a year maybe if you're lucky um, so i just i don't see the point Personally, I'm like, why bother? I'd rather have, you know, eyeball cash and, you know, <laughs> other stuff. Um, so I think short duration has been really popular because um, a lot of investors just don't have a good place to put cash. And because it's a, it's a 40 act fund, right? It has it, literally intraday liquidity. And a lot of our institutional investors will trade it at the nav. This is, this is cool. And I know you guys are ETF guys. It's, so interesting the nav based technology so i i here's my analogy i am um, i think of trading in the secondary market that's the sure shares outstanding as like dirty clothes in the laundry right they're go, they're just going around in the bin they're just trading hands um the primary market is the you can also use for etfs um just like a mutual fund where you trade at the nav etfs have that as well so you can always use the primary market to do it's called a nav-based create. Look, it's my business card right here. I don't know if you can see it. Uh my business card. And on the back of it, it has the three magic words, which is called a nav, uh, I can't get the screen right. Nav based trade. Nav-based create is like the new magic words that I learned because some of our institutional investors, when the fund was super small, they'd put like $10 million market order and the thing would go, wow, you know, and there was no reason that it was going up so much. So the NAV-based create is the three magic words if you're buying. NAV-based redeem is if you're selling. But you can always trade ETFs at the NAV. And that's like putting yeah. those into the machine or taking them out. So that's Talk what more about starting. that. Talk
2: about the specific process. Because we agree we go through this all the time. We run some ETFs. And we see those, those hairy bars. And we just are... I know. You know so both relationships are good. It's when you don't control the relationship and they're
1: buying at the wrong time, at a yeah, time when sure. the close, whatever. Right. So if you do own it, um, that mechanism so, is key. So,
2: yeah. So so Nancy, walk through that maybe just hypothetically, not for any fund that any of us manage, <laughs> the the nav based create process
3: because yeah, I think that so, that's
2: tremendous value add.
3: So let me let me share screen. So um. All ETFs have a creation uh, size. Um, So let's look at let's just look for first we We'll look at spider just because it's a big, big ETF. Um, You can go to the, uh, you know, it's probably on the website or whatever, but you you can call your ETF desk and say, what's the creation size? Most ETFs trade in 50,000 shares. That's a kind of typical creation size in the US. What is it in Canada?
2: Um, It's about the same
3: about the same. So let's see. And, and some ETF issuers charge a creation fee, like Spider charges $3,000. I've all, I made it small on purpose. I did the smallest we could at the time, which was 25,000 shares. because I want it to be efficient. I want it to be like a good thing for clients. And then we waived um, the creation fee, so it's zero. So this is about, it's 25,000 shares times the nav of the fund is one creation unit. And so let's see. Let's put in you guys HRAACN, right? So all, yours has 25000 too. And yes, also great for investors, no creation fee. I was hoping that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> so very both, both your ETF and my ETF are very efficient. And here I'll show you on our, um, let me go to our presentation deck. There This is not specific to Eyeball, but if you go to the back of our presentation deck, it is page, uh, Which one? This one, page 17. It has a little slide here, not specific to our fund. All ETFs work this way, describing primary market versus secondary market. Secondary market is the shares outstanding. It is the clothes in the laundry machine. They just trade hands. Primary market is adding laundry or taking it out of the bin. And you can use that with the APs. our fund, we have 17 different APs and you can even do it with your custodian. You just call up and say, I'd like a NAB based create, or you can ask for a block trade. And then you can compare to see which is better for your investors to use. But I think it's awesome that you guys have no, no fee because it just makes it more efficient. And I think it's also good when you have um dislocations in the market like for instance march march was a mess in the u.s treasury market the treasury market got completely whack and that's my technical term for it <laughs> you know it broke um, So liquidity can go away in any market at any point point. and if say you owned um any treasury etf ival anything and you wanted to sell and the fund was trading at a discount to nav you can also sell using a nav based regime. So it's just a, a good thing for you know ETF investors to know as fiduciaries they can always decide which is the better way to execute primary or secondary and it sometimes depends whether you're buying or selling which is better.
4: So the, your counterparty on the um, on the options book are they mm-hmm. they're willing to create redeem intraday give you um, or give you the AP's quotes on the underlying, so you can you can stay at NAV there. You didn't have any trouble in March with with pricing those um, or well, creates and redeems.
3: Fund that we used had a lot of problems. It was trading at a substantial discount to NAV for yeah, right. Month. Um, pretty much every Treasury ETF dislocated because the Treasury market broke, and so ETFs, the liquidity of ETFs, is only what is the underlying. So ETFs are often blamed for liquidity events, but ETFs are the only thing that trade. The reason that people were using ETFs to trade treasuries is they couldn't trade treasuries directly in the market because it was broken. So most pretty much all treasury ETFs were trading at a discount to NAV, And that's just because the ETF was the only thing that was actually had liquidity.
4: So, yeah, I, I remember Andrew Miller pointing out in in I think it was March 19th or something that the, mm-hmm. the TLT was trading at a seven percent discount to NAV. <laughs> yeah. just, that, that is that was just really bonkers. that was a scary. <laughs> now, were you able things. to
1: as Under-run you price or eyeball? Or were you able to price it based on the underlying NAV of the uh, Schwab, or did you have to use the mark to market um, of the of the ETF? Well, I don't know if it's an ETF, the Schwab
3: product. Yeah, so, so ETFs always have two prices. There's the NAV and then there's the secondary market. So yeah. it's always the same. And I have nothing to do with pricing. I don't price, you know, the administrator prices the book. It's not the portfolio manager who does that. So I'm sure the same with your ETFs. So I have nothing to do with pricing. It's independently priced, which is a, a good thing for our investors.
4: Yeah, I was just, I was wondering whether the options can be, the, the APs have access to, um, to, to pricing and like, you know, they can go to the to the dealer and and add exposure to those options intraday to facilitate creates or 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 redeem exposure in those underlying options to facilitate redeems. Um and it sounds like they can, which is really neat.
3: Well, they, they do, um, for the options piece, they deliver the uh, the treasury ETF in kind. So they deliver shares of the Schwab ETF, and then they deliver cash in lieu for the options. So it's actually incredibly efficient because our fund is a $14 billion treasury fund, and then the AP delivers cash. And so we always change the basket every night because it's actively managed, and distribute that to all the et- all the ETF participants. But it's a pretty efficient fund because um, the create redeem. I remember when the fund was like a baby fund. It was like, uh, I don't know, $20 million. And we had an Australian investor interested and they're huge. You know, the Australians love cheap fees and long convexity, right? I'm like, I'm their girl, right? <laughs> and the Canadians, but um, we had a Canadian fund that was like, how much liquidity can we get? And I was asking different APs to, you know, to give us markets. And they were making, you know, 250 million nav-based trade markets and eyeball when the, the whole fund was 20 million, but that's because the underlying is a 14 and a half billion dollar treasury fund in cash and loose. So it makes it super efficient in terms of the create redeem process.
2: Yeah, it's an implicit versus explicit liquidity type scenario that I think yeah. that's why I wanted to go into the creates because it's it is. Uh, you know, just because when when you were in that in that um, gestation period and there wasn't a lot of um, mm. liquidity in the markets, the markets that you're trading have, you know, not infinite liquidity, but certainly massively significant liquidity. And, and thus, um, these are things that that are, are probably not well known generally. Mm. Um, so the the one I do have one other question coming to like so on the convex book, on the options book. When you have a daily priced product, right? One of the things that that uh, I think that we've always um, known as something that's hard is is okay. So you get a convex payoff, and then you have to think about money coming in and out on a daily basis, and how to sort of manage the tail wagging the dog. And I don't I don't know if you can delve into that at all. Is it is it proprietary or is it part of the sort of the, the gamma and big exposure that you're managing on hold in the options book that you think about that? How do you how do you manage that?
3: So I operate as a fiduciary for the fund, and I always do what is right for the fund as a fiduciary in my discretion as the portfolio manager. So daily flows in or out of the fund. You know the nice thing is it's not an index fund, right? We're not trying an index fund is trying to replicate an index and not have tracking error, right? So right. The board,
2: price insensitive.
3: Yeah, the, the fund portfolio manager is is judged entirely on do you have tracking error? And if so, how much? I do not have that problem. I operate as a fiduciary for the fund. I don't have to do anything ever unless I hit my risk limits. That the only time I ever have to trade is if the fund was you know, we had 20% option premium, I would have to take it down, but I don't ever, unless I'm hitting a risk limit, I don't need to ever do anything that's not in the shareholder's interest. And that's a nice thing for our investors because, you know, if you have, um, there are a lot of equity ball strategies that are passive and that's fine if you're selling options because you have to have, you know, you want them to expire, you want them to go away. But if you're long options, if you have something move, month, you don't want to have to wait till the end of the month and hope that thing is still down. Like a, a good example would be February 2018, right? That was when the Fed changed the CCAR uh, calculation and the US and Canadian equity markets dropped like a rock on Friday and Monday. But if you only rolled at the end of the month with a passive fund, you were screwed because it all came back it was just that like little bit of environment so if you're going to own you know if you have gamma if you're long ball and you're long convexity i think it would be foolish to ever have a passive fund in my opinion did i get your question good
2: yeah no of course so 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 it's about judgment it's it's about you know you are acting in the best interest of of the shareholders and you know if you get a, a massive payoff you're going to have to think about that and your risk limits and make decisions within the context of that. I'm summarizing, of course. Yeah. And uh, and and that's the expertise and judgment that are pe- people are paying for when they when they buy eyeball or, or invest in any of the other quadratic mandates that um, that you're operating in. Yeah. We would second that motion. Yes, we <laughs> like that. Yeah. All right.
1: Well is there anything else that you gents haven't covered for Nancy?
2: Well, <laughs> no, I appreciate Very the time. And- yeah. Nancy, is there anything else we haven't covered? What are yeah, the top right. questions everybody else asked that we, we have, uh, you know, not stumbled across?
3: You guys have been awesome. It's been a lot of fun. I mean, not what I normally do on a Friday evening. So uh, pleasure to join you all and, you know, I hope you guys uh, stay safe and uh, keep, keep cracking. I'll watch your ETF. It looks awesome. And uh, you know, really appreciate the time to be on your show. And if anyone has questions about the fund, you can always go to our website It's eyeball ETF. You can email us, ask questions. And we're, you know, nice thing about ETFs is it's so, it's full, fully transparent. Like I love the product because it's just such a great, you know, and I think the, the one thing I would say is allocators need to really embrace the ETF technology because it's, it's a commingled fund, right? And having, I guess my, My big thing is, I don't think it makes sense if you have public securities, why would you stick them in a private fund wrapper? You know, The only reason people do that is because it's a manager compensation scheme because you can lock up their AUM and charge more. And so I think public securities being in a public fund wrapper just makes so much more sense. So I'm uh, fighting the fight. I think ETFs are awesome. They're great technology for investors and I hope You know, hopefully, we get some of the Canadian pensions to embrace it because they're all allocators and they're all allocating to these, like you know, blah blah blah, esoteric hedge funds that don't have liquidity. And when you're trading liquid public markets, why not have the liquidity and the transparency and the lower fees? So
2: there we go. Amen to that. Amen. (laughs) Thank you for your time, and I will. I will remind everybody because. I thought this particular show was absolutely spellbinding and uh, so I will remind everyone to like and share, uh, resolve riffs, propagate the message so that we can continue to have great guests like Nancy on and continue to share, um, you know, I think thoughtful and novel and unique angles and views on the ETF market, the futures market, portfolio management, optimizations and etc. So smash the like button, share and and give uh give resolve and i all some love
4: exactly all right thanks guys right. have a great weekend
1: thanks, guys, thanks,
3: thanks so much. really pleasure being your guest thank you
1: thank you for listening to the gestalt university podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog you can also learn more about resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.